All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, does one of y'all mind opening us up with a word of prayer this morning? Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate that. Amen. Thank you, sir. Um, All right, let's go. And like we always do, we're diving into the decrees of God. But before we get into today's lesson on it, I want to go and quickly recap what we've done so far again. So we first off established the basis of the doctrine. Just because the reason I keep reviewing everything all the time at the beginning very briefly is because that way you can kind of concept, you can remember what have we covered so that if you think, oh, something's missing from this, then hopefully you can be like, oh, maybe I can... Go back and check on that from where it came. So, so we established the biblical basis of this teaching and we talked about kind of an introduction to it. And then after that, the next day, we studied who God is in more detail because so that we can have a proper kind of safeguard when we're dealing with this mysterious and difficult topic. And then after that, we looked at God's incomprehensibility. So the fact that we can know certain things about God, but we can't know every single thing about Him. And so uh, the fact that God is so high and holy and above us in his incomprehensibility is what actually leaves room for faith. It's what leaves room for worship. It's what leaves room for all these core elements of Christianity that we hold dear and that we understand Scripture teaches us. And then after that, the last three lessons, we looked at three inter very closely related matters that have to do with the decrees of God, which are um, that in light of God allowing sin and suffering... We are, naturally at, we are naturally kind of led to ask whether God is good, whether God uh, himself ever sins or does any evil. But we've realized that that's not the case. And we also found that there is still room for freedom and responsibility in light of God's decrees and the fact that God is a sovereign God, the fact that God is a God who's in control. And then finally, we looked at the fact that God never changes his mind on anything. God does not have an open view of the future. That's what we looked at last time. And so this time, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the doctrine of election and uh, we're going to look at the doctrine of predestination a little bit. How does that connect to the decrees of God? And so but before we go, let's just quickly review these questions again. I'll read them. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he is foreordained whatsoever. Amen. I feel like that's getting ingrained in there pretty good by now. I hope. How does God execute His decrees? God executes His decrees in the works of creation and prophets. Yes. Okay. So, like I said, today's is to do with election and predestination. So, this is a very relevant question, which is um, how our salvation and our election relate to the doctrines of God's decrees and his eternal decree. And so we know something which raises our dilemma like most of these things have to do with is the fact that question 10 in the catechism and 
What we learned throughout this whole thing so far is that the Bible teaches that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, right? And so naturally, if this is true, then God's decree must also include salvation, right? God's decree must include the things pertaining to salvation. It must also include things pertaining to damnation. Otherwise, you could not say something like he decreed whatsoever comes to pass, right? That would be inconsistent. And so the question is, if God knows all things and has decreed whatever comes to pass, then why are some people saved and not others? Right? It's, a valid, it's, a, it's a common question I think many people will raise in relation to the decrees of God. This is very much related to our previous discussions regarding free will and the goodness of God and God's knowledge of the future and all these things. It's again very intertwined with those topics. and So there's a lot of overlap, but... I just want us to see, first of all, let's look at the fact that the confession gives us a helpful answer for this question. And the answer is that God in His eternal decree has determined to elect some sinners, to save some sinners. And He has, we'll see, left others to act according to their own sin to the praise of His glorious justice. So let's read this, let's read this from, the, um, from our uh, confession. And just get it in the, in the words exactly what, the, what they thought it out to be. So, by the decree of God, so there we have it, for the manifestation of His glory. Well, you guys, don't, you guys can read this one if you want to, but you don't have to. <laughs> Some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. See, so they're, they're attributing this to election. This decree, they're connecting it intimately with predestination and election. Some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. And then it says here, others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of His glorious justice. Okay, And so what we have to understand is just this emphasis on others being left kind of does help us understand it more. You know, those people who do not get to go to heaven. So, yes, they were not elect, okay? But they also would not have wanted to be. You understand what I mean? They don't want to go to heaven, ultimately. And that's an interesting thing that these people have put in here because it definitely helps to illuminate this topic and kind of take a little bit of the difficulty out of it in some sense. And... Um, as we move forward, we'll look a little bit more deeply into this, this topic. So, um, first of all, I want to get to the heart of the matter. So, given the high level of disagreement on this topic, I always feel it's helpful to take some time to kind of accurately try to explain what it is that people who believe in God's sovereignty, people who believe in election, that's me. It's, it's important to always uh, e- elaborate and kind of unpack what it is that we actually really believe. Okay, what is it that we actually truly think about things? And the reason is, um, we need to get to the heart of the matter, and the reason is because there's so many misconceptions, right? So many people will argue against this kind of language, this kind of um, idea, and they'll do it on a false basis. They'll misrepresent what a 
person actually believes. And so for some people, the way they talk about Calvinists or about people who believe in predestination and election, you would swear they thought that Calvinism was some kind of like a cult where a bunch of people got together and they decided who was going to get saved and who wouldn't. And they made sure all the people they didn't like wouldn't get saved. And they made sure all the people that they did like would get saved, which obviously includes themselves. And they kind of have this weird view of things like as if we're just picking and choosing these things and making this whole thing up uh, in this way to kind of construct this. And the other thing is that a lot of people will insist that people who are Calvinistic, people who believe in uh, election, predestination, a lot of people will insist that those people have kind of a cruel view of God or a weird view of God that God would choose to save some and that he would uh, choose not to save others. And so... That's kind of why I want to just make sure we get, let's just get a clear idea of where do these doctrines, obviously they're biblical doctrines, but they've been recovered through the Reformation. They've been recovered throughout church history and they've brought life to religion. They've brought life to people. They've brought joy to people. They've brought true experience of God to people. So the question is, what is the heart of the matter? What is it that really brought this to pass and and why did these things come about? And so I want to kind of... Um, just bring it out to the open, bring it clearly forward, and that way to kind of uh, contradict some of the misconceptions about these ideas. So to help prove these ideas false, it's important to remember what it was that really fueled the Reformation. So I'm kind of looking around. I assume based on all your faces, nobody's really a visitor or anything like that. You all know what the Reformation is. You all know what, what this stuff is to do. So I don't have to go into too much detail on that front, but... Um, The recovery of the doctrine of election and predestination from Scripture was lost during the Roman Catholic Church, during the Middle Ages, during uh, several ages over the past of our history as the church, I guess, in the world. And so the question is, what was it that the Reformers saw in the Bible? Or what was it that um, even the Apostles saw in the teaching of the Old Testament when they brought these things forward because of the Spirit of God? What was it that they understood? What was the heart of the matter? So on the first hand, what they saw was that God was totally holy and perfect. That's the first thing that they realized. And the fact of the matter is they realized that God could not be appeased by works, by good works. Interestingly, in the Middle Ages with the Roman Catholic Church, he also could not be appeased by money that you paid to God, right? To pay for him to favor you or to do something. Or God could not be appeased by any other means that a human could muster up by their own will. Or by their own effort. Okay, That's what these reformers understood. That's what the writers of scripture understood. So they realized that the question. The question that was asked. Is better phrased. Not how do I get to go to heaven. And other people don't. It's not really the best way to phrase it. Though that's an interesting question. That's not the best way to phrase it. The best way to phrase it. Is how is it that anybody gets to go to heaven. To be with a holy God at all. You understand? That's the real heart of the matter. Because a. Because a person who doesn't agree with election, doesn't agree with predestination, they almost assume God should let some people come, right? God should let some people in. But these reformers, they open up their Bibles again for the first time. They're able to get in the Word and study it for themselves. And they immediately realize, man, like, it's a miracle that anyone gets to come to Him. It's unbelievable that anyone, a, a God this holy, if God is a God of holiness, then that changes the question, right? That changes the whole matter. And so because of this, they realized that 
in an amazing way, and as we see taught clearly throughout the whole of Scripture, that salvation is based on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. This is that great exchange, this Reformation reality that our righteousness is not worthy. Christ's righteousness is worthy. Our sin is worthy of damnation. Christ never sinned. His holiness gets given to us. His righteousness gets given to us because of the substitution when He bore the wrath of God on the cross, right? That's this amazing reality that shows us how it is that humans can actually come into relationship with God in the first place. So the only way that a sinful person could be with a holy God is through His electing, substituting grace. Him choosing, I'm going to save Seth. And I'm going to put Seth's sin on the cross. And I'm going to give the righteousness of Jesus to Seth. That's the way that salvation actually takes place. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. You cannot do anything of your own will. In fact, you cannot even choose it. Right? That's what they got to realizing. If their own will was the one choosing it, if their own will was the one um, having to muster these things up, well then... They were owned. They wouldn't be able to do it. They'd have no hope, right? If it was up to their own decision. But in fact, because Christ has elected some, because He has chosen to trade His righteousness for our sinfulness, now that is very getting closer to the heart of the matter, right? The question has changed. We can come to a holy God because God has made a way for us to come to Him. And then on the second hand, They realize, those reformers, they realize that Scripture teaches that God doesn't change. And if He has eternally decreed to save some people from eternity, then it must mean that people can actually have assurance of salvation. They can actually have assurance of salvation. So that fact, God doesn't change. We've already looked at this in several of our lessons, right? We've hopefully understood this very clearly taught from Scripture. And if God has eternally decreed to save some people which we've also looked at again. You remember that time we looked at the covenant of redemption in relation to God's decrees? That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have made this eternal decree to save some to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of the Son, to the glory of the Spirit, to the glory of God. They've made this agreement, this um, covenant that they would go and they would in the creation, in the working that they do in the world, that they would actually save some people. Right, And so, God doesn't change. And the amazing thing is, and this is the thing that some people have forgotten, and this is the thing, I actually had to be reminded of this quite recently, I think in the last year or so, that the real fuel of the Reformation, people have all kinds of ideas of what the fuel of the Reformation was. What was it that actually fired everybody up? Like, what was it that made these German people go from a bunch of Catholics who thought they could pay money to get to heaven, to being super excited about the Bible, to being super excited about um, Christ, to being super excited about the gospel, to reforming the church. What was it that led these Swiss people, these French people, these people all throughout Europe? What was it that made this whole thing blow up? The fact is, the thing that made this whole thing blow up was assurance. It was the fact that they finally could have assurance. That's right at the heart of the matter, right? So people in the Reformation did not have, before the Reformation, they did not realize that they could have a confident assurance of salvation in this life. They didn't have assurance. They didn't have certainty of their faith. So this was something that medieval people had lost. They had no confidence about their salvation. 
But the teaching of Scripture is clear, and the teaching of the Reformers is clear, the teaching of anyone who's understood the Scriptures is clear, that because God is unchanging, because His decree is rock solid, because He has elected some people from eternity, that means if you're one of those, and you've come to a saving knowledge of Christ, if you've had your heart and your life transformed by the Gospel, then that means, guess what? You can have assurance. And that's fuel. Like, that's amazing joy. Like, fuel every day. Man, I can have assurance. I can have confidence before God. I don't have to be miserable all the time. Because you would be miserable all the time, right? If you're even a little bit reasonable, and you look at your own life, and you go, man, I am so full of sin, I keep falling short. If you didn't have this substituting, electing grace gospel, then you wouldn't have any assurance. You wouldn't have any reason to get fired up at all. In fact, you'd have only reason to be worried and stressed all the time, panicking, miserable, wondering, will I make it? Can I make it? Is there ever going to be a day when I'll feel better? This doctrine of assurance is right at the heart of the Reformation. So the reality is that for those who are fully aware of their own sinfulness and their own tendency to run away from God and to commit sin, which is what this Reformed teaching kind of emphasized and brought forward, In that context, the doctrine of God's decree in relation to election and predestination is some of the best news ever. It's the best news ever. And that's why I believe in it, too. Because that was really good news for me. Like, when somebody finally taught this to me, which is the Holy Spirit eventually made it click and it made sense. When when this actually made sense and resonated with my heart and made sense for me, that was amazing news. I finally felt like, man, there's hope for a guy like me. Okay, so hopefully you've experienced this at some point in your life too. You're like, man, I'm, I need this. I need this to be true. Because otherwise, it's just not going to work for me. Because the fact of the matter is, um, God is holy, like they found out, right? And the fact of the matter is, there can be assurance because God has done it. And those are the things that we need to kind of realize are at the heart of it. And um, so there's, so kind of to sum up this point is, Some people believe that they are sinners and that they need to make a decision to let Jesus into their heart, right? Other people, like I was in that state, like those people who kind of understand this doctrine, they are so conscious of their sin. They are so aware that they are lost and that they are incapable that if they ever made a decision for Christ, it must have had to be because He first let Himself into their heart. Understand what I'm saying? We do accept Christ. We do ask Jesus Christ to save us. We do call out to Him. But at the end of the day, I've always found, man, at the end of the day, I, can't put that, I cannot put that on myself. That has to be because of God's eternal decree, because of His election. Because if I was to do it in my way, in my will, I never would have done it, right? You understand? We never would have done it. What we need is a God who's so gracious and so willing to break down our walls to... Uh, woo us to come to Him, to work in us to come to Him. What we need is a God who's so gracious that He would actually let Himself in. That He would come by His Spirit and renew us, regenerate us, work us, call us in a way that's spiritual and effective. And so this leaves us very assured and, and much more confident than any other view could. Because at the end of the day, the same God that brought you into His fold, that stirred you up, is the same God that can keep you in, the, in His fold, Right? And this is a wonderful reality for us as those who understand this teaching. And so, like every time, now we move on to the next part. Like every time, at the end of the day, when it comes to a difficult, mysterious doctrine like this one, which it is, 
um, we must always ask ourselves a very simple question, which is, does the Bible teach it? Does the Bible teach it? And if it is something we don't like, or if it's something that we don't understand, or if it's something we struggle with, or something we're frustrated about, the question is always the same. Does the Bible teach it? doesn't matter how you feel about it. doesn't matter what you think. doesn't actually matter what your personal experience might say about the matter. The matter is always, does the Bible teach it? And that's how we're going to determine this matter. And so the best place, honestly, to look is Ephesians 1. You've already done a bit of a study on this with Prashant beforehand, but I feel like we'll just quickly go and just read through and just kind of bring out how clear this teaching really is. It's unbelievably clear in Scripture. There's also many other verses, and I picked two there that we'll go through. And then we'll just deal briefly with 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, uh, which if you have questions about, we could talk about more later. But um, let's look at Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 14. It's going to go through slowly, and as we kind of reach a point that like very clearly teaches this doctrine of election and predestination, I'll just kind of highlight that, and we can just soak that up for a second, and then we'll move on to the next verse. And I feel like if you read this section with any kind of honesty, then you can really agree with me by the end of the day that the Bible does teach this. Okay? There's no way you can really read this and not think that the Bible teaches this. That's just the way it is. You can feel like you don't want to believe it and make some philosophical explanation as to why you don't agree. That's certainly an option that you can do if you'd like. But God's not going to be very happy with that. But the Bible clearly teaches it. So let's start. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So He chose us, that verse there in verse 4, He chose us in Him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having pre- and in here it says, having predestined us in verse five to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, right of His will, the ultimate will at work in there according to the good pleasure of His will. So when people say, no, it's at the end of the day, it's up to my will. I have to choose. I have to choose. I agree. At some point, you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to believe. You're going to have to choose. I agree with you 100%. But what's the moving... Who's the will here that's the one actively causing this to take place? It says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Right? Like, it's always amazing when you can read a text like this. And I, honestly, I think you could preach on this for like years if you wanted. But you also could just read it. And it's very, it's very clear. You don't even have to say much. There's not a lot that needs to be said about this. I feel like if you just honestly take the Bible at its word, and trust me, if you read it in Greek, it says the same thing. 
you read it in any other language, it still says the same thing. Okay? So if anyone ever says, no, this word, this word, this word, it's just not the case. This, this text teaches that God has chosen us for the foundation of the world according to the good pleasure of His will, not our will. In verse 7, let's start reading again. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him, God again, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So it's all God focused, right? This is all God word. So you basically, when we we talk about the doctrine of election, he keeps saying his will, his his, um, purpose. His glory. So the reality of the matter is, God's not asking you, come on, please join my team. He's saying, I'm God. This is my plan. This is my way I'm going. This is my situation. This is my redemptive work. This is my story. Get on board. Like, get on board with this. And if you're elect, you're getting on board, right? But I just don't understand. Like, people just kind of twist it and they make it man-focused as though a passage like this is constantly saying, according to Seth's will, or according to Daniel's will, or according to whoever's will, right? It's not, the, it's not the case. It's according to God's purpose. It's according to His predestinating will. And it's for His glory, to the praise of His glory at the end of verse 12 there. And then the last couple verses here, it says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. So it's a guarantee, and you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So what we need to realize here is that's that aspect from the Reformation. Remember I said about assurance? about confidence, is because if you're one of these people that the first several verses said, God has chosen, God has foreordained, God has predestined, God has made a way to make you a a member of His adopted family. If you're one of those people, then verse 13 and 14 says, then you will have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for an assurance that gives you confidence. That means that you can have a guarantee of your inheritance. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Which means in this life, right now, you can have certainty that you're elect because you live according to God's will and have been given His Holy Spirit that guides you, that teaches you, that takes you on that road. And so here in this one passage, we have all these amazing realities packed in. And I just think this has always been kind of one of those doctrines in my life. There's a lot of things I'll debate about. There's a lot of things I'll discuss about. There's a lot of things that I don't even know about. Okay, there's a lot of things I'm not sure about. 
a lot of times in different topics of theology, I'm like, man, I throw up my hands because I don't know exactly what the Bible says about it. That's just me being honest. But I don't think you can read this and think this isn't crystal clear. Anybody who thinks this isn't clear just doesn't want it to be true. Okay, that's just the way it is. You just can't read something this clear and not accept it unless you don't believe the Bible, unless you have a, some other philosophy or opinion that guides you. But anyways, that's Ephesians uh, 1 verse 3 to 14, basically just preaching itself to you. All right, so let's quickly look at two other verses just for the sake of having a few other verses. Uh, Revelate. There's so many verses in Scripture. Honestly, I used to, when I was in my hockey team uh, in college, I was trying to persuade a few different guys to become Reformed, and I'd literally oftentimes be like, just flip the Bible open and hand it to me, and I'll find God's sovereignty there. Maybe the odd time I didn't, I'd like have to flip over one extra page, but like, it's pretty much everywhere. So like, let's just do a couple verses to kind of go, in case they're like, you know, Ephesians is... Not a good book to go to or whatever. Revelations 13 verse 8 says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So I don't know if any of you were at the crusade, but this guy kept on preaching and saying, you can write your own name in the book of life today. If you will just accept Christ, then your name will be written in the book of life and you can have real confidence. Then another girl got converted and or apparently got converted and came to this meeting and he looked her straight in the face and said, your name is written in the book of life. And I said, how do you know? First of all, how do you know she got Born again five minutes ago. How can you possibly look her in the face and say that to her? But this verse clearly says, as is very crystal clear, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This book where your name is written is the book of the elect for which Christ then comes and gets slain. This is an eternal decree. This is not something you tell people, hey, sign up, to, sign up with your will to the program of God and get yourself written in. Basically, it's like a wedding, uh, a wedding guest book. You can just come up and just sign your own name in there. That's not, the, that's not the kind of thing we should think of this as. This is a book written before the foundation of the world. Revelations 13, verse 8. And 2 Timothy 1, 9 says, The Lord saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. His own purpose and His grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So this purpose and grace is given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages ever even began. And so, that is kind of a quick biblical summary on this teaching. So what about 1 Timothy 2 verse 4? That's a question to ask. Because people will often ask this. They'll say... Um, They'll say, well, there aren't, there aren't some people that are elect if it says in the Bible that God desires for all people to be saved. So in 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So this is probably the most common, in my opinion, the closest to a, an effective objection to election. 
comes in this to the teachings of election comes in this verse that God desires all people to be saved. How can God elect some and desire all people to be saved, right? That's, I think, the closest that anyone can ever come to having a valid or close biblical objection to the doctrine of election. So I feel like it's good to deal with it here and in case you have to um, encounter that again in your life. But the first thing that we need to see is that we just read in Ephesians and in 2 Timothy which, by the way, are written by the same guy who wrote 1 Timothy. Okay, So the, first, the same guy who just wrote, God desires all men to be saved, in this verse, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, is the exact same guy who just wrote that huge chunk of Ephesians that we just read about God's chosen election. And the one who wrote uh, the ones from 2 Timothy, which says that God uh, gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, so that's already a kind of a bit of a sticky one for the person to deal with, right? Then that immediately means, okay, we need to harmonize that reality with this one verse that um, can easily be twisted to have a bad view of election and predestination. And so the second, and uh, probably in my opinion, one of the best ways to look at this is to remember that mysteriously, God often desires many things that he does not decree. Okay, that's a mystery. Often, an example, he desires that everyone keeps the Ten Commandments 24-7, right? Because he, he commanded that. In other words, he wants us to do it. Of course, he wants us to do it. But obviously, sin exists. So it was never God's desire that sin should um, take place. Yet the existence of sin proves that even sin fulfills God's eternal purposes. Even sin is part of God's eternal decree. And I know we already did a whole entire lesson on that topic. If you're questioning that, if that's causing you concern, that is a mystery. Okay, that is a mystery. That's a very difficult thing to realize. But the fact of the matter is, like I said, if the Bible teaches it, we embrace it. We accept it as our guide for life. And we'll find ourselves living a life of joy, a life of fullness, a life of, of truth if we accept it. And we'll find ourselves struggling and uh, struggling to make sense of the world if we don't. And so another example of this aspect, of this kind of language in the Bible, right? Um, of God desiring something, but not actually decreeing it to happen. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. So you see there? That's that factor. He wants to gather them. He wants them to come to him. But they are unwilling. And God did not decree that every single person in Jerusalem would come to him. Did not decree that that would take place. And that's a mystery for us, right? We've talked about free will. We've talked about God's sovereignty. There's a mystery element there. But 100%, that's what the Bible is teaching us very clearly. And in a final and a, another helpful way, this is how Calvin, other people looked at it. I don't, I'm still a little bit tossed between the second option and the third option, though the first thing I said about Paul having written all of this is a bit of a clincher for me. Um, the, the last one says, another way, or another way that people look at this is they say um, that God in this chapter, in this verse, wants all kinds of people to be saved, right? Because the context actually shows that. It's talk, Paul's talking about pray for your kings, pray for your leaders, pray for uh, 
He's basically insinuating, pray for everyone. Pray for all kinds of people. Don't be particular in who you do and do not pray for. And so in that sense, I agree with that. And I don't think you can even argue with that. Of course God wants all kinds of men to be saved. That's why he has, at the end in Revelation, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. People from kings down to slaves, down to everything, right? All kinds of people. So God does, in fact, and you can 100% say God desires all kinds of people to be saved. And I would actually say in heaven, we're going to see all kinds of people there, right? And I don't think there's any reason that that's not a good explanation for this passage as well. Um, And so let us quickly go on to one more common mistake that is often made in regard to this. So people don't like to admit that the scriptural teaching is that God's decision to save some sinners is a decision that was made in eternity. And so they would sometimes um, mostly agree with everything that I've said, but instead they would base God's eternal decision. So in other words, they'd say the decree is based in God's um, ability to see into the future. So he's able to see the future free will decisions of people and then decree on that basis, right? But the problem of this, of course this runs into a problem because the scripture's teaching over and over and over again is that the grace and election of God is not at all based on someone's own decision or action. does not matter if God saw that decision or action in the future. It is based on God's eternal sovereign choice. That's what the scripture over and over again teaches us. Nowhere clearer said than in Romans 9 verse 16, which says, It is not of him who wills. So that's just plain. Okay. So they're saying, seeing into the future, God saw that somebody would use their will and then decreed on the basis of what their will did. But Romans 9 verse 16 says, It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Amazing. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of your own will, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so that objection, that future-looking objection, does not stand biblically. It's It's not on solid ground. So we find ourselves forced, forced by the Word of God to believe in election and predestination. If we want to believe in the Word of God, of course. If we want to actually embrace this teaching, if we want to embrace God's Word fully, and every jot, every line, every aspect that applies to us, every aspect that we can and should understand and submit to. So we're forced to believe in this. We're forced to submit to this teaching. And so in uh, conclusion, I'll try to do this quickly. This is the last little thing I want to go through. We have a quote here from the Confession, which says, The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. This is not something to mess around with. That men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election, So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. I want to just very briefly mention five things that the confession here draws out biblically as reasons for this high mysterious teaching. First thing is, it is a high mystery. Okay? 
It's mystery. You have to have faith to believe in this. You don't just get to have perfect, rational, enlightenment understanding of this whole thing. This is a mysterious doctrine. So the doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. You've heard of cage stage, or you've heard of people being overly bombastic and gruff and rude when they're reformed sometimes with these doctrines, not treating people with the respect that they deserve, not not handling these things with care. This is something to be handled with care. When you go out there to teach it to somebody, you're not going to club them in the face with it. You're going to hopefully open up the scripture. That's the best way to do it. Don't even try to debate them and argue them rationally. Just open up the Bible and say, God made the world. He made your heart. He made me. Here, let's read this together. It's a high mystery to be handled with special wisdom and care. The second thing, it is to be handled with special prudence and care. Okay, I just, never mind. That's the second thing I already covered. So this doctrine in the hands of a fool can be very damaging. Um, In the hands of the wise, it can produce a lot of good. In in my life, it started out, maybe I was a bit of a fool handling it, honestly. But you come to grasp it, and then over time, you start to understand the mystery of it. You understand the depth of it. You get a better grasp of it, and pretty soon, you don't... Um, treat it quite the same way. You gain wisdom on how to handle a teaching like this. The third thing is it says there that it produces assurance, right? Be assured of their eternal election. That people can actually be assured of their eternal election because God saves, because He's the one who brings you in, then He's also the one who can keep you in. He's not, um, it's not just dependent on your own performance if you're going to fall out of His good graces. Um, the fourth thing is that this produces praise and worship of God, right? It says, So shall this doctrine afford praise, reverence, admiration of God. And it produces this in us. Like if, as we go out to worship now, like this is what it's supposed to produce in our life. It's supposed to produce a Godward focus. You remember we read in Ephesians, it was all focused on God. It was God-centered, God-directed. God um, was the entire way the focus. And then the last thing is that it produces great comfort and consolation in the life of a Christian. It produces humility, diligence, abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So this fact, this teaching of the high mystery of election and predestination is supposed to make us actually feel comfort. Ultimately, if we're living according to God's will. We're living in line with His will. We're submitting to His authority. We're trusting and looking to Jesus Christ. This is supposed to comfort us. It's supposed to bring us great consolation. And so let us close on that note and I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Father God in heaven, Lord, we thank You so much that You, uh, in eternity, Lord, before the foundations of the world, have written our names in the book of life. We're in Christ. We're trusting in Him. We're leaning in Him on Him. If we love You, Lord. If we if we're walking in obedience with You, Lord, we know that You have written our names before the foundation of the world. That we can have confidence. That we can have joy. That we can live with a, a sense of assurance that is otherwise impossible. Any other path would never would never succeed. Thank You for the righteousness of Christ given to us. I pray, O oh Lord that you would please bless us this time as we go to worship. Please give us an abundant measure of your grace, an abundant measure of your assurance that we might sing and glorify your name and listen intently and just admire you for who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.